Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 7th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, delighted to have David Scott still with me in the studio. Welcome, David. And uh, we've also got Mark Anderson joining us from the United States. Plus, we have an important guest we'll be bringing on a little bit later. But uh, we're going to kick off with the subject of the BBC and the Irish light newspaper. Uh, now, it was only a little while ago that the BBC laid into the light newspaper, having done a, uh, an interview with the light team. Um, essentially, they then went flat out to destroy the reputation of the light newspaper. And one thing the BBC certainly didn't do is take any time to look at information which was accurately portrayed in the light. But here they are. They're now going for the Irish light newspaper. And the key target is uh, Gemma O'Doherty, who has uh, worked extremely hard to help bring this uh, newspaper to fruition. And uh, the key point is that apparently the uh, the Irish Light named a young man, um, Diego Gilsonen, and uh, said that he died as a result of vaccine injury. Uh, but it turned out all that from the BBC's claim that this wasn't true. And as a result, his mother has now uh, made a, I think it's a defamation claim um, against the Irish Light newspaper. Now, this has become huge news because, of course, it's the BBC's own Mariana Spring uh, who's decided to take this one on. And in the BBC's article, there are a number of questions to be raised, including who is actually funding the legal case. The article says that it's being done on the basis of donations. But could it be that our very own BBC is actually putting money in to help move this situation on. The problem is we just don't know. But what we do know is that Mariana Spring has boasted of uh, setting up false accounts uh, so that she can uh, uh, monitor uh, what she can, calls the conspiracy theory network. So is the BBC just reporting, David, or is the BBC actually encouraging uh, the whole thing into being? It's very difficult to know because... It's such a one-sided article. It's so uh, partisan. It's so much. Uh, it's so aggressive towards like the Irish Light newspaper, and it's not looking to have any balance or any or any judgment. Um, it 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 wouldn't seem unlikely that they would be promoting a case. Indeed. Well, according to the BBC, we've got no worries because let's uh, quote from this. It says deaths from COVID vaccines are extremely rare. UK figures record 55 deaths where the vaccine was given as the under underlying cause out of more than 50 million people who have had at least one dose. Uh, but of course, the BBC itself has done absolutely no proper investigation into what the true were. Uh, casualty figures of the vaccinations are and clearly <clears throat> excuse me clearly they're not going to do it in this article so let's just briefly pop mariana spring back on screen uh, she is clearly enjoying her new celebrity status as mariana in conspiracy land we like to call her the bbc's bunny girl because she's very keen on getting us to look down the rabbit hole but in fact, this lady has now set, her, set herself up as witch finder 
really general for the truth. But of course, it's not the real truth. It's only the truth as Mariana sees it. And if we just uh, follow on through the uh, advertising on the BBC website, this is a trend which I think is extremely uh, dangerous, uh, where we have Mariana Spring weaving in the idea that anybody that challenges anything the government says, particularly on vaccines, could become a violent movement. This, uh, David, uh, to me, sets the scene. She's labelling people. She's not doing the proper investigation into why there are all these concerns and what's her objective at the end of the day. It seems to me to brand anybody who dares question the government's official line, and of course that line's taken up at the BBC, you are going to be labelled probably right-wing extremist. Why have I introduced right-wing? Well, thank you to the viewer who picked up this from the Epoch Times. BBC retracts far-right characterisation of ULEZ protesters. And this was a classic with the BBC that the protest was about issues to do with uh, the ultra-low emission zone in London, but they wove in far-right, and this was untrue. And so many things are untrue. The the uh, issue regarding COVID vaccinations and the risks um, that Mariana Spring and, and the BBC described there as 55 deaths. Well, that might be 55 deaths where uh, it's recorded on the death certificate. But of course, it's over 2,000 if you go to the yellow card system. And if you then take on the yellow card and MHRA's own estimate of how much under-reporting it is, it could be 20,000. Um, and none of that's mentioned. Right, they're they're putting forward an agenda that is at least based on partial information, and they are suggesting to the public because we're the BBC, this is the whole story, and it just isn't. Now, fortunately, we have other people who are telling parts of the whole story that the BBC wish to conceal, um, including uh, Norman Fenton, who is co-author of this. this uh, substack piece, MHRA, we have all the pregnancy outcome data, but we're not making it public yet. Now, this was a response to uh, Cheryl's FOI uh, request of 13th of April, um, looking for information on uh, pregnancy uh, data. And uh, the this was refused on the basis that it was going to be part of a future report. But there's no indications when that future report is going to appear uh, she did, however, get a redacted report dated July 2021, marked not for publication, that was sent to the Pharmacovigilant Expert Advisory Group for advice. Um, now, this um, described uh, a group of people termed the Yellow Card Vaccine Monitor Group, 30,000 people self-selected who were reporting on adverse reactions from the vaccine. And in that group, where reporting was presumably much higher, um, 53% reported at least one adverse reaction. There were 1,366 pregnant women in that group, and uh, those who had AstraZeneca uh, reported adverse reactions 66% of the time. Um, but the report was is now quite elderly, and its timing was not long after the, the injections, so there only had been six births by that point, so we don't really know the outcomes uh, for... Uh, for pregnancy. And this uh, this brings us to our guest, uh, Professor Norman Fenton. Um, and uh, uh, 
Uh, Norman is the Emeritus Professor of Risk at Queen Mary University and uh, Director of Agena Limited. Uh, Norman, welcome today. Uh, could you tell us more, please? Yeah, so, yeah, can you hear me okay? Perfectly, thank you. Yeah, so the weird thing is, as you say, they set up this special monitoring group specifically to closely and regularly monitor vaccine recipients over a prolonged period. And of course, it was especially important to do that for pregnant women because we didn't have any long-term safety data. And yet it seems that not only are they, not only do they have the results of, of this and they're, and they're using this, you know, this section, what is it, this section 22 of the Freedom of Information Act to, to, to not release it, but it appears that they might well have actually terminated that monitoring, that close monitoring, as early as July 2021. We certainly haven't seen anything since then. And as you said, it, that already exposed some very, very serious safety signals. It's not just the enormous proportion of um, people who are being monitored who actually experienced at least one adverse reaction. We see, as you said, at least there was over, over half, but there also those interesting differences, like the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, was again far more likely to um, result in adverse reactions. So of those receiving the AstraZeneca, uh, I think it was almost 60% reported at least one adverse uh, reaction compared to say only 39% for Pfizer. So you've already got those problems. And in the pregnant women, of those who received the AstraZeneca, there was a whopping 66% who already reported at least one adverse reaction. So you've got those obvious safety signals Right, but then you've also got the interesting, um, uh, the interesting thing that comes out of it is the enormous underreporting that must be going on because at the same time, they also were getting the yellow card. You know, the normal. They were also talking about the normal yellow cards, one that you know not on the monitoring scheme. And at that point, I think that there were um, something like it was three hundred. Uh, just going to check this. I think there were. Um, there were, yeah, just over 300,000 separate individuals reporting yellow card adverse reactions. So it's a normal system. And that represented about one, only about 1% of the people who had received the vaccine at that time. So what you've got on the one hand is where you've got the non-active monitor, where you've got the active monitoring, right? people are being encouraged to report their adverse reactions. You've got over 53% reporting them, but where they have to go through the awful yellow card system, which is incredibly difficult to complete, and we know all the problems with it, you've got only basically 1% reporting. So there you get a feel for that enormous the under-reporting is in the yellow card scheme. And of course, this is the very reverse of what's been suggested to us, because whenever the 2,000 deaths uh, reported in the yellow card uh, scheme are mentioned, the response is, oh, well, you know, anyone can report to this. We haven't substantiated this. And the suggestion is that there's, there's huge over-reporting. It's never quite stated, but that's, that's the impression that's given. And this is quite the reverse of uh, what you've just outlined as demonstrable. Yeah, fact. absolutely. We know there's unreporting and there's, and it's almost, I mean, okay, they will, they will argue that the monitoring group may be more likely to uh, record less serious, you know, adverse events, which wouldn't normally maybe be recorded by um, people who would having to do 
you know, having to go through the, 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 you know, the online yellow card scheme. But we are talking about a difference between, you know, 53% to 1%. I mean, that's, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we've got to remember the MHRA have, have always admitted that the underreporting that they, they have said before that they only believe that at most 10% of people report the adverse reaction. So they've already admitted that. And what this evidence is clearly showing is that it's less than 10%. It's well under 10%. And there's no reason to believe that it's significantly different for death reporting either. Just one other interesting thing about the uh, about this report. So what they did project, what they did send to, to Cheryl, and they also sent this to um, um, it was was it uh, Nick Hunt as well. So they actually sent a redacted publication, sorry, a redacted document, which was marked not for publication, which they had sent in at the end of June 2021 with this information. That's how we get it, because it was, this was what they did send, this redacted report. They sent that to their pharmacovigilance expert advisory group for advice. They wanted those people to say, well, what's going on here? Are there any safety signals? Blah, blah, blah. That's what they were intending it for. And that's the that's the reason why we've actually seen this data. This was never intended for publication. But the interesting thing is in this document, they actually hide the most serious adverse reactions because the only adverse reactions that they list are what they call the 20 most common ones. And of course, death and the most serious ones are not amongst the most common reactions. So we don't even know from this report, they're not even revealing how many of those were deaths. Uh, Norman, thank you very much for that for the moment. We'll, we'll hopefully have a chance to come back to you because we've more on uh, matters COVID-related to discuss now. So we have here a response from MHRA uh, to our own De Debbie Evans, uh, answering a question that uh, she'd raised on the MRNA, MHRA as enabler. Um, and what they're saying here is uh, uh, that uh, they're a MHRA or a uh, regulator of uh, medicines, provide um, medical and, and medical devices, and um, they are uh, looking at uh, the UK system to make sure that uh, healthcare products in the UK are safe and effective. They then go on to say that transforming the way we innovate medicines to reach patients in the UK is not a nice to have or a, a must do. Uh, it's, it's, it's imperative, it's, it's a must-do, it's imperative, and the time to do this now, and that they are transforming the MHRA, uh, making the regulator an enabler of innovation. Our new innovative licensing and uh, access pathways establish new partnerships to support new medicines, robustly and safely, at the point of their development. So this is a, a move to change the nature of MHRA, and it's being trumpeted by Chief Executive Dr June Rain. Um, this took us to the MHRA corporate plan uh, for 23 to 26. So this, is, this is quite new. Uh, and they talk about uh, the world-leading world response to COVID-19. Um, so this is something that they view as being very positive. But quite worryingly, they talk about balancing their responsibilities to, remain, to maintain product safety and champion innovation. They're, that alone suggests there's a balance being made, there's a trade-off being made between yeah. product safety and, and innovation in products. And this, this seems to be an admission of a huge conflict of interest. Brian, have you anything to add to well, that? Well, you, you, you've said it in a, in a 
a sentence there, David. Uh, this organization sells itself to the public that is protecting our safety as a regulator, making sure that pharmaceutical products are safe. But actually what it's doing in another room is working hand in glove with the pharmaceutical industry to speed through their products and make them as much profit as possible. Uh, this is poacher and gamekeeper. And in safety and risk, I would suggest you can't have a foot in both camps. Yeah. So they, they then say our critical priority is to protect and improve public health. This is the golden thread through our work. OK, that's very good. Uh, but they then talk about a risk proportionate regulation. And um, it, the, the, the summary of this is um, they wish to have um, a, 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 a balance between the, the risks and benefits. And you see this here. They say patients and the public rely on us to ensure that all medical products used in the, in the UK meet the necessary standards of safety. They don't say safe and they don't say effective. The necessary standards of safety and effectiveness and quality. Uh, we retain our independence in making data-driven regulatory decisions, consulting our independent expert committees to ensure that the balance of risk and benefit is positive. Not vastly positive, just positive. And so if the, it's, a, it's a risk assessment and it's a balance between the harm we're doing and the benefit we're doing. And as long as it's positive, that seems to be okay. Yep. Um, and it goes on, they go through, um, they, they raise issues here that if you, they, they want to become more proactive and they want to involve patients. Transpires, one of the ways they want to involve patients is if you report uh, to the yellow card scheme, uh, they're going to encourage you to give you a, give a sample of your DNA for analysis. Because if you're reporting but, to the yellow card scheme, it must be your fault, Brian. Well, there's that. But also, this is providing that information to the pharmaceutical industry to better innovate their products. So uh, that, there's, there's a number of angles from that one, David. Yes. And the, the report here, we are at a pivotal moment in our evolution. And we have a unique opportunity to further our mission to protect and improve public health through scientific expertise and risk proportionate and agile regulation of medical products. We continue to balance keeping patients safe and enabling the developments of innovative new medical products. Again, there's a balance between safety and other interests. In what, in what world should the medical regulator have to balance safety with anything? Uh, it's, it just seems very, very strange. Uh, we're seeing them also block uh, vaccine-injured people on Twitter, as you see here, uh, and then, then unblock them when they realise that's playing very badly. Um, they're not addressing the concerns over clinical research and the quality of clinical research that uh, people such as Marcia Angle, uh, former uh, editor of the New England Med uh, Journal of Medicine, has highlighted. Um, and very quickly, just go on to, we are seeing COVID-19 being pushed as a threat once again. Here, Sky News are pushing this. And the World Health Organization is saying the, the, the same thing. We urge governments to maintain, not dismantle the systems they built for COVID-19. So this is all to be, we, we're meant to be still afraid, but this isn't working. Um, we're seeing, we'll see here a little video that illustrates that people have not, have, even Slowly in the mainstream, have seen through the fear. The weird thing that happened around COVID, I'd never noticed this before in any other time of my life, but you weren't allowed to ask questions at, at, at any point during this. You just had to, you had to do what the man on the TV said, right? You had to do what the man on the TV said without questions, and then you're a good person. 
But if you question it, then you're a white supremacist Trumper, not they're like, whoa, no, no. No, I didn't vote for Trump. I just have questions. Jimmy, only dumb people ask questions. Isn't that weird? It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Even comedians would get on stage and they would shame people for trying to get informed about a medical treatment that was experimental that they had to take or they would lose their jobs and they wouldn't be able to travel. And when people tried to get informed about that, other people shamed them. They would say, please tell me you're not going to do your own research. <laughs> You've heard people say that. Please don't do your own research. You know, before COVID, doing your own research used to be called reading. Now you're shaming me for reading? <laughs> At the behest of Big Pharma? It's like I woke up in the middle of a Bill Hicks bit. Well, it looks like we got ourselves a reader. That's how much people internalized the propaganda from Big Pharma was that they would shape, they would be anti-intellectual enough to shame people for reading while they're wagging their finger at them for doing it. You would never shame people for trying to get informed no matter what other subject it was, no matter how unimportant. Like if I say, hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go buy a car. Don't look into it. Well, well, how will I know which car to get? Ask the salesman, he's the expert. What are you, Henry Ford? Well, there we are. Sometimes it takes humour to cut to the chase. And uh, the comment about the used car was the one that said it all. Would you buy the used car without any advice or thought into what you were doing? The answer is no. It's a vaccine. It should also be no. Um, let's bring in Mark Anderson, because uh, you're looking at some uh, slightly different angle for matters to do with vaccination in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that comedian reminds me of <clears throat> George Carlin in the U.S., by the way, who told us we don't really have freedom, we have owners. Uh, a very good video for people to look up online. Uh, anyway, yes, over Connecticut, we have a Associated Press report from early in August. Federal Appeals Court, the headline, upholds Connecticut law that eliminated the religious vaccination exemption. And I'll very briefly call attention to the ad to the side of that photograph, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But going on with this story, moving on from there, uh, uh, this is the beginning of this August 4th story, Associated Press, the great wire service of the United States. A federal appeals court upheld a 2021 Connecticut law that eliminated the state's longstanding religious exemption from childhood immunization requirements for schools and for colleges and for daycare facilities. This is very significant in and of itself. And I would point out before we read the next uh, bit of text that as they develop the, um, the uh, 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 excuse me, the WHO treaty, the uh, uh, pandemic treaty and the IHR regulations and the continual and very questionable updates of that instrument, those two things running on parallel tracks. When we see things like this, as that moves along at the WHO, it's of double concern because it's almost like they're trying to reclamp down on people's rights and revisit some of those oppressions in a piecemeal fashion as they work on the pandemic treaty and those regs. 
Um, there may not be a direct correlation, but I would argue there probably is. It's something that at, at the very least bears watching. But moving on to this next one, this decision comes about a year and a half after a lower court judge dismissed the lawsuit challenging the contentious law, which drew protests at the state capitol. Quote, this decision is a full and resounding affirmation of the constitutionality and legality of Connecticut's vaccine requirements. Constitutionality, huh? Okay. Vaccines save lives. This is a fact beyond dispute. Democratic Attorney General William Tong said in a statement, quote, the legislature acted responsibly and well within its authority to protect the health of Connecticut families and stop the spread of preventable disease. Um, pretty amazing there. Vaccines save lives as a blanket statement as opposed to differentiating between different vaccines which have different performance records. Um, anyway, that ad that we saw off to the side and this is becoming extremely common in mainstream media reports about vaccines and vaccine-related matters, uh, is from a huge pharmaceutical company. This one is called Boehringer, Boehringer Ingelheim, which I quite honestly had never heard of. Uh, it says, as of 2018, this is according to Wikipedia, Boehringer Ingelheim is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, and it's the largest private one. 53,155 employees as of last year. $24.1 billion in revenues founded way back in 1885 in Germany. Uh, these ads are very common on political, associated press, and various news outlets uh, as they talk about uh, vaccine-related matters. And uh, this is a comment from the other side, the people that wanted that religious exemption. The same story here. We fully intend to seek review of this decision in the United States Supreme Court. Supreme Court, no less, to obtain equal justice for all children, not only in Connecticut, but in every state in the nation, according to Brian Festa, co-founder and vice president of We the Patriots USA. That was his statement. He said his group, which focuses on religious and medical freedom, parental rights, and other matters, disagrees with the court's conclusion that removing the exemption does not violate religious freedom under the First Amendment or the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. Um, certainly you can say a lot of seeing a lot of things about vaccines, but I, I cannot see how, uh, this decision can pass any kind of constitutional smell test, but we'll be watching to see how this develops. Now, this is the last item here on this report. Another curiosity, when I first went to open the headline to this report and read it, this pop-up ad came up. And as I would back out of it and keep going into the article, the same pop-up ad would continue to come up, this one from Moderna. So um, while the BBC is doing its thing, as you guys described in the beginning of the show, we have uh, American-based media, uh, Politico, Associated Press, and many others just festooned with pro-pharma ads, even while they report on COVID, vaccine-related matters, legal matters, and whatnot. So the, the bias is 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 systemic here. It's institutionalized bias, and there's money flowing. So the, the, the standard legacy press really cannot be trusted at all at any level on these matters. But in the meantime, this Connecticut thing is a, a rather disquieting development as the pandemic treaty is developed. And again, we could be seeing a, a kind of piecemeal um, reinstitution of this oppression that we had during the COVIDocracy Hopefully I'm wrong, but that's the way the trend looks right now. 
Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that uh, very interesting uh, segment there. Well, of course, if we can't trust legacy media, we should be trusting new media. Um, we'd like to say as UK Column, if you're not a subscriber at the moment, then please consider joining us. Uh, not only can you get into the community and, of course, extra see us in extra, uh, but you are also supporting the work we do and helping us expand. And, of course, we encourage people to have a look in the shop for items that also supports UK Column. And uh, an important thing is that all the information we're putting out is designed to be shared as far and wide as possible so that people um, can have at least some idea of what alternative viewpoints are and indeed the truth in many instances. Now, um, on the 8th of August, uh, we've got an interview, a second interview with Andrew Bridgen uh, coming out. Encourage people to, to uh, tune into that. Amongst other things, Andrew talks about the climate of fear in Westminster controlling uh, matters in the House. Uh, if it's not fear, it's attempt to buy people off if they dare have an alternative opinion. And uh, a couple of interesting emails uh, we've had in this one from Val talking about checking the integrated care pathway. It was imported from uh, Canada. Baroness Meeching is still trying to push assisted dying in the House of Lords, saying she has widespread public support. If that passes, my guess is we'll get the full Canadian system in the UK, and that could be what she's aiming for. This means certain members of the public will be asked by GPs if they wish help to terminate their lives. What a time to do this when the NHS is crumbling and operations delayed. Can you tell Debbie? Well, we've already told Debbie, and we're going to say a big thank you to Val for alerting us to this. Well, we've already mentioned the BBC, but we're going to come back again, and this time the context is in Ukraine. And uh, what's the reporting? Well, first of all, it's now becoming recognised around the globe that Ukraine is in trouble with the counteroffensive. Here's the New York Times. Ukrainian troops trained by the West stumble in battle. Very interesting term. Ukraine's army has now set aside US fighting methods and reverted to tactics it knows best. So the Ukrainians, given what I'm calling a hodgepodge of uh, weapons, many of them substandard and old, are expected to fight prepared Russian defences with no air cover, something the US would never do under any circumstance, but they expect the Ukrainians to do that and to die as a, co as a consequence. And that, that New York Times headline, Brian, that seemed to blame the Ukrainians. It's not blaming the Western tactics. It's not blaming the Western advisors for maybe using tactics that only work with, um, with air cover an air superiority, which the Ukrainians don't have, it, the, the inference is it's somehow the Ukrainians are substandard. I, I think well, I, th I think your observation is correct, David, and we're going to lead, well, we'll, we'll be coming out of this segment with a comment about Zelensky himself, uh, but it does appear that as the Ukrainian offensive is showing itself to be weak and failing, so Western media is beginning to back away from Ukraine. But let's bring in the uh, BBC because fascinating article went up a couple of days ago. Ukraine counteroffensive against Russia yields only small gains in the first two months. So the inference from this is that the, the counteroffensive is going to last a lot longer when many commentators uh, believe that the offensive is dying as we watch it. 
uh, small gains. Well, what are those? But this is the BBC known for its propaganda and bias. But look what it's doing with a standard report. It's now got a verify stamp on it. And uh, let's have a listen or watch this little video clip and get a feel for how the BBC deals with really important subjects. Ukraine launched its counteroffensive in June, but is it making any real progress? We've had a close look at three pieces of evidence from the battlefield. Let's start with mines. This is the first line of Russian defense just south of the city of Orekhiv, and it's heavily mined. We verified this drone footage that shows what happened when the Ukrainians ran into one of those minefields. It shows why the Ukrainians are advancing so much slower than a lot of people had hoped. Secondly, the Russians have been surprisingly innovative in defense. They've got this weapon, the Alligator, the Ka-52 attack helicopter. This is a propaganda film by the Russian Ministry of Defense showing it firing a missile. We geolocated this to the Ukrainian village of Zadsieva. So what does Ukraine have in its favor? Well, one answer is high-quality Western-supplied weaponry, like, for example, the British-supplied Storm Shadow missile. Ukraine's aim is to try and weaken Russia's defenses from within. Now, we verified this footage of a long-range missile strike on the Chonar Bridge. The problem for Ukraine is that in three months' time, the rainy season will have arrived, making advances difficult. So while Ukraine is making progress, it's very slow to show tangible results. So now we've got slow to show tangible results, but what mastery of spin by the BBC, because of course, uh, three critical things, apparently the mines and what they showed you then was not maps of the mined areas. They showed you maps of the overall Russian defenses, which include mined areas. But of course, the viewer would not know this was what the BBC was doing. Uh, we've got the BBC talking about innovative uh, weapons systems anti-tank helicopters been around since the Cold War, so there's nothing innovative here. Um, what the BBC didn't want to comment on, though, was the course the target of the Russian missile from the helicopter was Ukrainian armor, which is being slaughtered on the battlefield as a result of these very capable weapon systems. And then lastly, we attempt to spin back to the great Western weapons by the talk of the British storm shadow uh, missiles, no mention of the fact that very few of these missiles have got through, largely due to the uh, Russian anti-aircraft defences and their electronic warfare uh, prowess. But uh, the BBC spinning the subject. And if we bring the reporter back on screen, let's just add a bit, uh, bit more into this if we can. Um, OK, let's see what's going to happen here. Apologies for that. We seem to have a uh, uh, we seem to have a small issue with the uh, slide transfer at the moment. Oh, it's finally come in. Um, so uh, think about what he's saying. He's picking out three items which he's being particularly disingenuous in reporting. Uh, but this is the BBC's excuse for Ukraine making slow process progress. And I'm going to call this cognitive dissonance because the BBC knows that Ukraine is not making progress on the battlefield, but they're not allowed to report that. And this causes problems 
for their reporters. So um, the other bit is that what we're seeing here is a spin to achieve the political opinion. Now, if you want the facts and the truth about what's happening on the battlefield, um, I am suggesting that you absolutely go to alternative media. Weeb Union uh, mentioned many times. We've also got the Free Russia Channel. Uh, we've also got Defence Politics Asia. And we've got the Military Summary Channel. And the big difference about these people, apologies for that, is that uh, uh, they are reporting from the front by the hour, the day, the week and a month. So the BBC, with a multi-billion pound budget, can't report the facts, whereas these individual uh, analysts working on social media are clearly getting information which is coming direct from the front. Let's have a look at this little uh, embedded video clip uh, here, which of course the BBC doesn't want to talk about. And this is the fact that not only is Western equipment being destroyed, it's being captured. This is a British Mastiff vehicle, and it's one of an increasing number of Western vehicles that are now coming into Russian hands as they are damaged, but often just um, abandoned on the battlefield. So if we come back to the uh, BBC report, um, well, the thing they major in on is that time's not on Ukraine's side. And then they start bringing in the, uh, the US presidential election cycle. If Ukraine cannot show any decisive gains on the battlefield by then, it's far from certain that US and NATO support will continue at their current high levels. So the only reason that the Ukrainians are fighting and dying is that this is a tool to support Biden in his elections. Unbelievably callous and cruel, but this is the reality of it. And if we have a look at the Wall Street Journal, they at least report the truth. Ukraine's stalled offensive puts Biden in an uneasy political position. And just to end on the point that you uh, alluded to, really, David, um, many people are now starting to say that Zelensky is looking uh, as if he is moving towards the end of his tenure. Some people have suggested that he will be eliminated with whatever that means. But many people are saying that he will shortly be abandoned by the West as having failed. And I'll just end this segment by saying a big thank you um, to the gentleman who sent me in this information from UK Defence Matters, pointing out that as uh, the fear of war against Russia is ramped up, uh, we can't even train our own RAF pilots. So, David, a pretty mixed bag there, but it's clear that the BBC is floundering now um, in what it can report about Ukraine. Well, it's not informing people. I mean, this is the thing they're meant to inform, entertain and, and, and inspire or whatever their, 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 their spiel is. Uh, they're not informing people. To get information, we're having to go to uh, these uh, alternative media sources and they're excellent and they're detailed and you can get uh, commentary from various perspectives, pro-Ukrainian, pro-Russian and more neutral. But the information, the data... Is, is, is very good and you can form an independent view. The BBC don't allow that. Indeed not. Well, let's bring Mark back on screen. And uh, Mark, is it, the na is it the nation state that's controlling the political agenda or is it forces beyond and higher than the nation state? Well, it, that's an interesting question. Um, we're going to talk about the Prisker Forum on Global Cities again. I'll mention a few UK columns ago where I reported on the U Ukraine Recovery Conference that was held in London 
And there was very little, if any, mainstream legacy reporting on a huge conference involving the PM of your country and officials and uh, corporate high flyers from around the world, uh, an amazing dearth of information. However, that's done. But one of the things that was evident there was that the cities within Ukraine were going to be seen as global cities. Now, going back to that first slide there, um, the, the Prisker Forum on Global Cities uh, got moved to later in the year. This is the premier global cities forum uh, in the world the most uh, visible one. And it was going to be earlier in the fall. Now it's been moved to November 13th through 15. Just a quick update on that. Pritzker is the well-known um, influential Jewish family out of the greater Chicago area. J.B. Pritzker is a governor of Illinois, a very influential family. Uh, they run a major hotel chain, Hyatt. And uh, so they're very influential in the public and private sectors. That's what the name Pritzker is about. But anyway, Harnessing AI tools for urban leaders, as we're seeing here, is the main theme of the Global Cities Forum to be held in Chicago in mid-November. Artificial intelligence, it says, is reshaping our world. It can help effectively deliver social services, identify workforce trends and necessary skills, and provide localized climate predictions. Oh, how handy. But without ethical and transparent use, AI can easily exacerbate inequalities, intensify surveillance, and imperil democracy. There's a little bit of truth there. What do you know? Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, uh, that's why from November 13 through 15, 2023, the Prisker Forum on Global Cities will host Harnessing AI Tools for Urban Leaders. So this is the focus. Do not miss the opportunity to build a global community and connect with policymakers, practitioners, and private sector stakeholders. Join us as we explore cities where AI is already working for the common good. Okay, I'd like to see some demonstrations of that, and so on. And this is a little bit about the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, but note the part that I circled at the top with a question mark, the 2023 in-person Prisker Forum in person now. They got out of this virtual thing they were doing during the extended COVIDocracy. It's invitation only. Now, that's the first time I've seen invitation only, and I've been covering this since 2016. The Chicago Council kicked off its Global Cities um, programs in earnest in 2015. I picked it up in 2016. Never before has it been private, only for invitation only of um, attendees. But I think, in my estimation, this is just my gut feeling, they're getting wind, that they're getting some criticism. Um, I've been contributing a lot to that. Uh, the most recent AV conference that uh, UK Column was involved in, I did a whole section on global cities and smart cities, among others, that day. And so I think they might feel the heat, and they don't want any unwelcome questions or questioners at their forums anymore. But anyway... Uh, a little bit more miscellaneous here. There's also a center on global cities at the Chicago Council. It says here they elevate global cities as central actors, shaping world affairs and advancing city-based solutions to global challenges. And as I've said, the global cities movement is about uh, giving cities um, extraordinary, really extra constitutional authority to step beyond their authorized powers and uh, meddle and get involved in um, global and national policies that is really outside their lane, outside their purview, outside their authority. So it really invests cities with um, 
unnecessarily broad and improper authority. That's one of the main problems. And they'll, then they'll network the cities together, independent of the nation states that they reside in geographically, and do kind of a, a bottom-up rather than top-down globalism. That's what it's all about, and they call it globalism. Anyway, um, we could talk about a little more here. Um, the C- CCGA, the Chicago Council, has influence that transcends national borders. Uh, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs is a leading center for studying the influence of cities in solving global challenges and shaping the world's future. Note that language. With over a decade of research and programming on global cities, the council examines the policies needed to be successful, identifies global best practices, connects leaders, and provides concrete recommendations to decision makers. Uh, They're really involved in decision making much more than they'll let on. They they fudge that quite a bit. But anyway, that's the main developments. That's uh, one of the main uh, forums on global cities. It's been moved later in the year, and now they're going private. They don't want any unwelcome guests there which is unfortunate because otherwise I'd already be there. I'd already plan on being there, that is. So we're going to have to figure out another way to uh, approach that. Maybe some video footage will be available after the fact. We'll just have to wait and see. Okay, Mark, thank you, Mer- thank you very much for that. And a little bit of a coincidence, I got an email um, that came in this morning. Have a look at this. Welcome to ARC. This is from a lady called Kathleen. Good morning, Brian. Have you heard about this? Sounds like a good opposition to the World Economic Forum. Regards to you and the team. Now I'm going to say thank you to that lady for sending me this. I had no idea what this organization was, so I went looking. And um, what it is, ARC is the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, and it's being established apparently as an international community with a vision for a better world where every citizen can prosper, contribute, and flourish. And I have to say, the more text I read, the more uncertain I was becoming about this particular organization. I went to have a look at people. I always do this. Go and have a look at the people and have a look at their backgrounds and what they're doing. And what I was amazed to find is that this organization has many of the people that are funding and supporting GB News. But who are they? Well, these are certainly people who are involved in large amounts of money, hedge funds. Uh, Many of them have got the stamp of global elite on them. That's what I would say. That's a personal opinion. Uh, But we had Jordan Peterson in amongst them, and he has a very good reputation. But I got an uneasy feeling about what this organization was really doing. And uh, we will dig deeper and report more in due course. Now, another email that came in uh, was to do with the imprisonment of pregnant women. Uh, This is from a lady called Anne, and she says, Dear Brian, I was sent this out of the blue. I cannot understand any human beings letting letting this happen. I remember that Melanie Shaw wrote to me about a woman in a cell next to hers who had a miscarriage of twins one night after being given a routine anti-pregnancy pill, and the woman was left on her own. And uh, this was a very poignant message because I also remember Uh, Melanie talking about that. But what the lady linked through to was this change.org campaign ends the imprisonment of pregnant women. And uh, you can find the the main petition here. And uh, this is particularly uh, distressing subject. And I think people really need to reflect 
on whether we should have pregnant women giving birth in some pretty dire circumstances in our prisons. But that also interfaced with how I've been feeling this weekend because I've been talking to a couple who've had their babies taken shortly after birth by the UK state. And I just want to show people the situation in UK because I cannot name the couple. I cannot name the babies. I cannot name the local authority. I cannot show evidence in the documentation being circulated in the case. I cannot name the experts who arranged against the parents, nor can I expose their callous reports. I cannot enter the court, nor can the public, nor can the media. And uh, the family court is secret. There's no jury and the judges are apparent to themselves. So I cannot tell you, the audience for UK Column, what my concerns are about this case, but perhaps you can see from the fact that uh, uh, we've got a secret court operating, uh, we are in dangerous, dangerous territory. And uh, we've just dropped on screen a key, uh, a key part of this case, uh, where there's a suggestion that if babies are adopted, the parents might be able to see them once or twice a year, perhaps for an hour or two. Think what that would do to your mind, your mental health as a parent. But this is the reality. And, of, and as a child. I mean, this is not in the, in the interest of the children at all. Uh, it's, not, it's not in the interest of the children it can be in some cases, and we have to recognise that. But uh, the key point here is that the uh, the uh, parents are being taken away from the children. And I just want to mention this organisation. I've spoken about CAFCAS many times over a great many years, but I encourage people to go and have a look at them. And um, What better place to start than their uh, annual report and accounts? Notice that it's in cartoon style. Uh, but they assure us they're doing a really good job. But some really important information came out in this document. If we think back to April 2021, CAFCAS staff needed to support children in 26% more cases in family proceedings than before the pandemic in March 2020. That represented an increase of around 13,000 individual children, taking us to 38,185 open active children's cases, the highest in CAFCAS history. So this quasi-government organisation, which also interfaces with the very cruel contact centres where mums and dads may see their children for a few minutes or a couple of hours, um, CAFCAS working in, together with many of those organisations with a memorandum of understanding, and uh, we now can see the scale of these tragic court cases happening across the country, where, as I say, no jury present, no public present, no press present. Uh, this is UK, not the Soviet Union, apparently. The, the, the secrecy is of huge concern, and the juries would, would fix this, because if, if it was a case that uh, no family would lose their children unless the jury of the peers considered it was right that that should be done, uh, then the the um, danger of overreach by the state would be largely eliminated because we could trust the good sense of 12 or 15 people from the society uh, in which we live much more than we can trust the state, the organisations and the judges uh, operating in secret. Yeah. 
Okay, well, Mark, we're going to come back to you on the uh, issue of children and the safety of children in the in the states. Yes, um, a quick shout out to Kevin and Denise Coffey of uh, Pontiac, Illinois. I met them recently at a Michigan library. Great folks there might be visiting that area later on in the year. They are new UK column viewers now. And so a quick shout out to them. Uh, anyway, moving on. We have a related item here that's been transpiring in the United States involving one Ammon Bundy. Many people might be familiar with the Bundy family. Ammon is one of seven sons of Cliven Bundy, a noted patriotic constitutionalist rancher who some might recall had a standoff with the uh, uh, Federal Bureau, Bureau of the Interior and FBI and other federal agencies over uh, cattle and grazing rights and land rights, property rights. It was a big major standoff in 2014 in Nevada. And there was a potential uh, armed battle that never happened, fortunately. But a lot of people, uh, some people at least, went to uh, prison for a very long time. Others, including the Bundys, were eventually let out when the, the judge came to her senses, you might say. But here in this next shot, there's Ammon Bundy. Uh, with the cowboy hat on in the middle uh, of that shot, that photo. And what's going on here, and I'm, I'm happy to report that the child in question, Cyrus Anderson, who's now 26 months old, is free from the clutches of the state. And um, uh, consulting a uh, source I have here on another, another computer, you're looking at the parents there, in this next photo, that's Levi and Marissa Anderson, no relation to me, by the way. And I'll, I'll read a little bit from some text I have here. Noted Idaho constitutional activist Ammon Bundy and associates and organizations with which he's affiliated, including Ammon for governor 2022, he ran for Idaho governor. They were ordered by an Idaho jury to pay $52 million in damages after a Boise hospital won a recent defamation ruling against them, and this is St. Luke's Regional um, in Meridian, Idaho, near Boise, and they allege that Ammon and an associate, Diego Rodriguez, quote, or orchestrated, excuse me, a smear campaign against St. Luke's amid, amid the protests that erupted after Diego Rodriguez's grandson, Cyrus Anderson, the, the son of those parents, uh, was taken from his parents by Child Protective Services and police back in March of 2022 in order to be medically examined over a six-day period at St. Luke's. The child was assumed to be malnourished and, quote, in imminent danger. And Ammon told me, we began, we began protesting at the judge's house. It was completely corrupted, taking Cyrus from his parents, and we said we're not going to let them do that. The good news is that Cyrus, thanks to a public up uproar, thanks to the protest, is back with his parents, Levi and Marissa, and they uh, have since moved to Florida to, to get out of that whole atmosphere there. And Ammon also told me uh, for, a, uh, for this report on UK Column, we exposed them so badly, they didn't have much of a choice but to dismiss this matter. Their plan was to put baby Cyrus in foster care and uh, all this happened, Ammon told me, according to him, even though an ambulance statement and a separate doctor's statement both noted that Cyrus was considered healthy, what it was is he had a temporary condition that he, that he no longer has where he would uh, vomit if he consumed anything other than breast milk. So he had to have only breast milk 
Um, he lost a little bit of weight, it's true, but he was basically healthy. And so um, all's well that ends well, but uh, just to touch on Ammon just a little bit more, he's having to deal with the legalities of whether this fine is going to stick. And if it does, uh, he of course, he doesn't have $52 million, nothing even close to that. What assets he may lose, uh, uh, what homes, what vehicles, what other assets, money, et cetera, et cetera, that he may lose in this very bizarre uh, court decision. But let's do a little bit in the meantime here. Uh, let's go back to uh, a little further back in, in the slides. Um, what we have here is uh, right here, um, this St. Luke's Children's Essence Clinic, and it, it gets into a lot of different matters. But meanwhile, as all this has been happening, St. Luke's is running a, uh, a gender reassignment clinic inside. So they have a lot of interests in um, uh, manipulating the lives of children. It says here, uh, the team of specialists at St. Luke's Children's Essence Clinic is dedicated to improving health and experiences for children, adolescents, and young adults uh, with the development of uh, you know, gender identity-related surgery, reassignment surgery, hormone blocking um, kind of uh, uh, treatments, things like that. Um, reading here, uh, puberty blockers. These are medicines that block hormones that cause the, the bodily changes during puberty and the surgery, different surgeries that can change the look and function of your body. They help they can help your body match with your gender identity. Uh, it, it also includes non-medical options like uh, breast uh, binding or padding and, excuse the language, penis tucking or packing. And so uh, this hospital that um, is suing Ammon Bundy for allegedly defaming them, uh, which has millions of dollars and in an influential uh, law firm in its war chest, um, is, is meanwhile performing these sorts of, of uh, procedures. Now, what we're looking at here is, I see you guys um, uh, edited it down a little bit, but this is some, some photos that were already pixelated to, to tone down the detail a little, but these are photos of what uh, gender reassignment surgery can look like and just how profound and uh, damaging to the body it, it can be. So uh, viewers can take that as they will, but uh, it's pretty disturbing uh, photos to look at there. So, um, and then look at, if we proceed a little further, uh, I'll just mention that there's ads there. And uh, you will notice St. Luke's ad is there in this uh, set of sponsors for the Pride Boise event, a huge tranny LGBTQ parade that's been happening there. I'm not sure how many years in a row, but St. Luke's is also involved in that. And then this next matter involves. Boise Pride cancels the drag kids event after organizers receive death threats. And I'll, I'll conclude here. So uh, St. Luke's is, was also involved in helping sponsor drag kids. And what that involved was having children actually play the role of trannies and people in drag. So it's, it's the full gamut of uh, potential and real child abuse there in Boise but they're trying to make Ammon out to be the bad guy, even though he apparently was instrumental in rescuing Cyrus from the clutches of the state. And I'll, I'll conclude by saying that Ammon suspected that if the child had been put into foster care and there was video footage 
of them talking about specifically wanting to put the baby into foster care. Had that happened, um, Ammon feared that the child might end up in some sort of um, uh, child trafficking ring or something like that. He suspected some pretty dark dealings at the hospital. He just couldn't prove it. So it's, it's quite a profound situation. Okay, Mark, thank you for that. And it is very interesting, the similarities in techniques around children, uh, whether it's UK or the USA. We'll come on to that more in future news programs. Um, you're going to take us out here, uh, David, with the subject of law and what's good law, maybe what's bad law. Yes, yeah, so we're looking at Israel here and the, the societies in, in very deeply split over the subject of law. Uh, here we see Reuters reporting the uh, Israel judicial overhaul um, and looking at what the issues are. Now, the issue is that there's a reasonableness clause that's been removed. Right? The, the, there was a reasonableness clause that the Supreme Court could use to strike down government legislation or government acts or government appointments that were deemed unreasonable. Um, and the reasonableness clause has actually been uh, eliminated. So there's been a law passed to say that laws no longer need to be reasonable, which is a, a bit interesting. Uh, it comments here, Reuters comments here, Israel's democrat democratic foundations are relatively fragile. It is no constitution, a one-chamber Knesset uh, where the government holds a majority and the president's office is largely ceremonial. So the Supreme Court is seen as crucial for protecting civil rights and the rule of law. So the, the checks and balances in Israel are largely coming from the court system, and that is now under attack. Now, the Jerusalem Post goes through what the pros and cons of this are. Um, so the pro-reformers are saying uh, that there's, there's no clear criteria for what reasonableness means, that the, uh, that the reasonableness clause has been extensively used and it's, been, it's becoming an area where activist judges can can thwart the democratic will of the people and uh, un that, that appointed judges, appointed by a committee, ultimately are able to overrule elected officials. That's their position. Uh, the contrary view is uh, that the reasonableness standard is rarely used and it's required to prevent um, rights abuses by the government. Uh, it says here the tool of reasonableness is one of the few measures that the judiciary has to check the excess of government, uh, which is already, already highly centralised and powerful in Israel. Uh, critics argue that the Israeli system uh, has a sensitive balance in removing the checks, that, uh, such as the reasonableness standard, without creating another check against government, can create an unaccountable government. So this is, this is a very important issue. Um, the Jewish uh, People Policy Institute is... Uh, uh, considering this this law removing the, the the case of reasonableness an unreasonable law, uh, stripping the Supreme Court of its ability to apply reasonableness standards um, is is itself an unreasonable position. Uh, but it does it does list some of the things that this was used for, and some of it does seem a bit iffy. You know the, that uh, it was used, uh, for example, um, to uh, sorry, beg your pardon. Um, it was used to uh, limit um, 
uh, or to, to insist on mitzvah um, uh, ritual baths being installed in, in, in a particular local authority. It was used to take out government officials which had been appointed by the government and they weren't allowed to be appointed. So there did seem to be a certain amount of violation of democracy going on. So there are, there are views on both sides of this. Uh, interestingly enough, the Council on Foreign Relations has uh, decided to get involved in this debate. Uh, because it's a debate over the role of the judiciary in democratic government. And this piece by the, by the CFR does look at various countries, including Britain. But they conclude, the debate in Israel is a discussion about, uh, about matters that every democracy must decide, always seeking that delicate balance between majority rule and minority rights. No system is right, none is perfect. So no side in these debates has virtue in its grasp. And they then quote Thomas Jefferson, who stated in the first inaugural address in 1801, um, all will bear in mind that this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable and that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect and to violate them would be oppression. And this is the inherent contradiction, Brian, that we have a democracy where majority rules, but if majority rules uh, without limitation, it is oppression, and this is what uh, the state of Israel is currently very much at metaphorical war with itself over presently, and it may actually it may actually become violent, it's such as the passions that are being aroused. But the limitations on democracy, things that we've talked about extensively on the UK column and some of the specials that we've run, and what provides that limitation is very important, very important for our society. We're seeing that, those problems in Britain as well. Indeed we are, and I, I've mentioned the family courts of no jury or public or press, uh, but the all-important jury has the ability to override bad law. And of course, this is one of the key things which the uh, judiciary at large in the UK at least do not want the public to understand that somebody can be found not guilty even though they have broken the law. I'll leave our audience to uh, think about that. And uh, we're going to say... Thank you very much to Mark Anderson for joining us today. Fascinating to see what's happening in the States. Some really serious stuff unfolding again around children, but we'll do more on that in due course. We will be having a UK column extra in a few minutes. So if you're a subscriber, please do join us for that. Uh, one of the things that we'll be introducing in extra is the um, uh, Sound of Freedom uh, video. Uh, there's now a promotional video clip out. We will be able to show that. And we're also going to be featuring Dr. James Lindsay uh, talking about what wokeism and Marxism really is and how it works in Western societies. So do join us if you're able for UK Column Extra. Meanwhile, a big thank you to all our audience. Big thank you to all our subscribers and supporters and those who've donated. And uh, we will be back at the same time on Wednesday. A final slide, just as we go, we started in COVID, we'll finish in COVID. A final slide is two men laughing together and one saying, remember when having no symptoms is one of the symptoms. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for watching. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye.